Once again, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prayer that we just sang. And we ask that you would help each one of us to not be overcome by the temptation to blend in, but to draw close to you. Because we know that the closer we draw to the world, the farther away we get from you. And so I pray that you'd help each one of us to learn well the lesson that the Lord Jesus spoke to this church, this church a long time ago, but to all the churches since then, and certainly to our church tonight. So we ask for your help, your guidance tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Message this evening is politically incorrect. Is that okay? It's going to be politically incorrect. I don't apologize for that because sometimes to be politically correct is to be morally incorrect. This is one of those times. In a world where tolerance and acceptance of almost anything is promoted, we're called to unbendingly be pure in our devotion and our obedience to God's Word. In our world today, almost anything goes. Almost everything is tolerated. The only thing that seems to be intolerable to many people today is those who have convictions and aren't willing to compromise those convictions. People today will accept almost anything except those who believe that not everything is acceptable. So we have a letter before us tonight, and if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. The letter to this place called Pergamum speaks to all of us who have ears to hear, and it shouts very loudly, don't be a compromiser. Of course, this is a reference to doctrine and truth and the purity of the church, but here's how it goes. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so we're confronted with the idea, don't be a compromiser. And that's with regard to our doctrine, to our faith, to God's word. Don't compromise that. Sometimes it's good to make compromises. There was a time when our boys wanted a dog. We didn't think it was a good time to have a dog. We got a guinea pig that barked instead. <laughs> Honestly, her name was Silky. If your wife wants to vacation in Paris, you want a vacation in Derby, 
Maybe you can compromise by going to Ocean City and eating French fries. Sometimes compromises are okay, but not in the areas of doctrinal truth and the purity of the church, and that's what's in view before us tonight. We can't compromise God's truth. We can't compromise what we believe and what we live for. So we're looking at the church at Pergamum, the destination, and I'm going to show you a map on the screen here. You see it? Charlie, all these people need to set up an appointment with you. Now here's the map. We've been to Ephesus. We've been to Smyrna. We're going to Pergamum. And you can see where Patmos is. Here's where John is, and he's writing. And so we've got a situation where Pergamum, or sometimes some of your older translations will say Pergamos. In fact, King James does in several other translations that probably only one or two people here have ever even heard of, let alone carried. But Pergamum, about 55 miles due north of Smyrna, 100 miles north of Ephesus. It was a city of wealth and a city of fashion. Sounds a, a little bad already if you're, if you're thinking in that term. It wasn't a city of commerce. Wasn't really a port city. There was water nearby, but not really there. Pergamum was known mainly for its religion. And that was a a huge part of that city. Large number of temples and altars that were honoring many gods. City of Pergamum appeared as a large hill in the shape of a cone towering a thousand feet above the plain. Near the top of that hill was an immense altar to Zeus. Nearby was a temple to Athena. There were other gods honored as well. Dionysius, Asclepius, the deity of medicine, often pictured with that sign of the snake. Maybe you're familiar with that from... And I don't want to put any of those on a screen because I don't want to really have idols here and gods that were worshipped all over the screen. I just want to stay clear of all of that. But even more important than all of these was the well-developed cult of Rome and Caesar. Remember that Smyrna had been given the honor of building a temple for Tiberius Caesar in 23 or 26 A.D. Pergamum actually built a temple for the worship of Augustus Caesar three years before that, so they were ahead of Smyrna in that regard. Pergamum had a huge library of 200,000 volumes, second only to the great library at Alexandria. And later, Mark Antony sent this library to his lover, Queen Cleopatra, just a a little bit of the history of the place. Pergamum then was a blend of political power, religion, and academic sophistication. All of those things can blind people, and they still do today. It's amazing what happens sometimes when we send our students away to colleges and they come back and they're seared for life because they've gotten the truth attacked. The truth that they've been taught that they've grown up with and it gets attacked. Well, Pergamon was blending political power, religion, academic sophistication. There was a church there. We don't know the particulars of how it came about. We just know that there was a church there. Then we come to the description of Jesus, always appropriate to the particular letter to which he's writing. Jesus is described as the one who has the sharp two-edged or double-edged sword. If you look back at verse 16, he's warning the church members that unless repentance occurs, he will use that sword. He will fight. 
you know what we're discovering as we look at these letters? Christianity is not for wimps. Christianity is hard if we do it the right way. If we don't compromise, if we're not afraid of what's going on, and the Lord Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms, he doesn't want to compromise, and he is willing to fight against that. The question is, are we? That sword refers to the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Ephesians chapter 6, we know that, but here is the quote from Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And it's that Lord Jesus with that sword that's the one that is writing. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the one, if they don't repent, he's going to come and make war against them with the sword of his mouth. The Lord Jesus absolutely means business here. And he's telling us we cannot afford to be a church of compromisers. We can't be a church that wants to blend in. So this is not a soft, warm, fuzzy portrayal of the Lord Jesus. Pictured as judge, executioner. He knows everything that goes on in our lives. He knows everything that we're thinking. In Revelation 19, verses 15 and 16, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I hope we can see that picture of the Lord Jesus. It's not just Jesus loves the little children. It's not just Jesus loves me. It's the fact that Jesus is the executioner. He is the judge. He is the one who warns his people. He warns his church. He warns everybody else as well. To the church at Pergamum comes this commendation in verse 13. This church is commended for being true to Jesus' name and not renouncing faith in Christ, even in the middle of a depraved society, even in the face of persecution. So this is a good commendation. Jesus says, I know where you live. And where they lived was a rough neighborhood. It was a rough neighborhood because it says it's where Satan's throne is. It's where Satan dwells. It's where Satan ruled. It's where he lived. This particular city, Pergamum, Satan's throne was there. I say that and emphasize that because there are some people who think that Satan's throne is in hell. It is not in hell right now. That's not where Satan lives. That's not where he reigns. Satan is in this world. We've got this mistaken notion that Satan has a headquarters there in hell where the demons come and they go. They receive their instructions and they try to seduce humans to come back to headquarters with them. That's not how it works. Satan is, in fact, the prince of this world or the ruler of this world, as we're told over and over again. Three times Jesus calls him that in John chapter 12, verse 31, John chapter 14, verse 30, John chapter 16, verse 11. He's the ruler or the prince of this world right now. Not the nether world, but this world. Second Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this age or the God of this world world 
Obviously, small letter G. Ephesians 2, 2 refers to him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the prince of the power of the air, in other words. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. John tells us in 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, or the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. But that's where he is. He's in the world. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one or lies in the power of the evil one. So this religious city was, from Satan's reckoning at least, the best place where he could have his headquarters. That's where he was going to reign from. That's where he was going to live. That was his headquarters. He always seems to work effectively through religious organizations and institutions. Satan's demons pose as ministers of righteousness, after all. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. I know you know these verses, but it's good for us to review them, to see them as well as hear them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The point being that we have got to be on our guard, and God makes it crystal clear that that's true. Chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians in verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. But in the middle of the warning about people is the statement that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't go around with his pitchfork and his long tail. He disguises himself. He will be found in places where religion is preeminent, as he was here in Pergamum. Jesus says that he knows his people live in the middle of Satan's religion into this non-Christian world. He knows that. I hope that all of us can take comfort in that, all of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus knows. He knows where we live. He knows what's going on around about us. He knows the attacks. He knows the things that are going on that make us very, very anxious and very uncomfortable. Satan's already been defeated by Christ's work on the cross But despite their overthrow, the powers of darkness continue to fight for every inch of their territory. They don't want to go down without a fight. They know their time is short, and so they're trying to do everything that they can to thwart what God's trying to do and to become a part of evil. They're trying to take care of all of that themselves. There is great comfort in knowing that the kingdom of Satan retreats only as the kingdom of God advances. There's also great comfort in that Satan knows where you live. This is a picture that Joe Stoll is going to comment about. Joe Stoll was taken by this, where 33 miners were trapped in a Chilean mine deep in the Earth's surface. This took place in 2010. They were more than 200 stories underground, if you can picture that. More than 200 stories underground. And here's what he says about that. He says, I wonder if they felt totally lost and doomed to a slow and painful death. 
Imagine how they must have been filled with joy when they got a message from above that the rescue team knew exactly where they were and that the process of getting them out had already begun. And from there he makes this point. There are times in all of our lives when we feel like we're stuck in a really bad place. Anxious and alone, we despair that we are out of options and that no one understands where we really are in life. But in such moments, we need to remember God's comforting words for the early Christians who were stuck in a world where Satan's presence dominated all that was around them. I know where you dwell. Their situation did not escape the Heavenly Father's notice, and as they were faithful to him, he would sustain them until he rescued them and brought them safely home. The fact that God knows where you are and that he is very much aware of the difficult situations you are in provides the confidence and strength needed to live for his glory. So be encouraged. Remember God's words of comfort. Help is on the way. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What does that mean? Satan's throne? How literally do we take that? Well, what exactly Satan's throne? Some believe it was the magnificent altar erected to Zeus that dominated the Acropolis at Pergamum. It was a huge horseshoe-shaped colonnade court, 120 by 112 feet, described as one of the greatest works of Hellenistic art. It could have been that. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just mentions this phrase, but there are conjectures. Another conjecture is that it may be a reference to the worship of that God I mentioned earlier, Asclepios, the God of healing. Asclepios was depicted as a snake. And get this, how many of you love snakes? Is there... Okay, um, I don't see anybody. Hope isn't sure. But she loves animals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well... Asclepius depicted as a snake, non-poisonous snakes roamed freely in the temple that was erected for him. People slept in the temple. You know why? Because they wanted to have a snake slither by and touch them. They thought somehow, Hope, are we okay now? <laughs> you don't like that kind of snake from Okay. But that's what they were doing at that particular time. And it's easy for Christians to picture this being the throne of Satan if snakes were honored and exalted in the way that they were. Others think Satan's throne was a reference to the emperor worship that was going on at that time. Pergamum was certainly a center of that in Asia. And whether any of these specific ideas are in mind or something else, here's the point. It's not necessary for us to know what's going on exactly. The point is that in the middle of Satan's headquarters, the majority of the believers in Pergamum remained true, did not renounce their faith, even though somehow, someway, this was considered Satan's throne. Even when Antipas, faithful witness, was put to death, according to verse 13. This is an artist's conception of Antipas' death. It was a very, very cruel and unusual death. Let me tell you this story briefly, because this is another one of those... As we talked about Polycarp last week, he had some words to say that for every Christian who would honor the Lord, they go down in history. Christian tradition tells us of this particular martyr who was brought before a statue of Caesar and told to swear that Caesar was God. 
But Antipas boldly proclaimed that Jesus alone was the Lord and that there was no other God but he. The Roman official exclaimed, Antipas, don't you know that the whole world is against you? To which Antipas replied, then Antipas is against the whole world. Among some of the most significant and famous words uttered in Christian martyrdom, once again, Antipas, don't you know that the whole world is against you? Then I am against the whole world. That's some courage. That's some loyalty. That's being a real Christ follower. Antipas was put in a brass bull, which was heated with fire until he roasted to death. He didn't care if he was against the whole world. Incidentally, the name Antipas means against all. Antipas is called my faithful witness, the same words used to describe the Lord Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5. And that word witness translates martus, a word we know of as martyr, because so many witnesses for Christ paid with their lives. Here's a probing question. Are we against all in being true to the Lord Jesus and maintaining our faith in him? Are we against all? Are we against any? Stop and think about that. Would we stand up to anything for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we walk away? Do we back down? Do we not want to get involved in anything? Do we decide that it's up to God to save whoever he wants to save and I'm not going to have to share my faith? I'm not going to get involved at all. We may not be called to die for the Lord Jesus Christ, but we certainly are called to live for him. And maybe some of us will have that privilege of being asked to die for him. Are you willing to do either? Live for him or die for him? You're willing to do something that's unpopular? Something that people around you might say, this is totally ridiculous. I don't have any idea why you would want to do this. Nobody else is doing this. Why would you get involved with that? Would you stand your ground even if you become the brunt of all the jokes of all the people who are around about? There's a lot of good that's said about this church because they weren't involved in that, but there is still a condemnation, and we see it in verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I do have a few things against you. You're not a perfect church. There's some things that are going on that are very, very good, but there's some, some things that are not so good. The issue is compromise. You are a compromising church. You are allowing things into the church that should never be allowed in here. The church at Pergamum was tolerating false teaching and therefore false practices in their midst. There were some among them who were corrupt and they were tolerated. Someone has said, well, many in the Christian realm today make light of doctrine and biblical and theological error are viewed as unimportant. That is not the perspective of the Lord of the church. He wants us to guard the purity of the truth of his word. References made to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans that was present in this church. They were actually very similar. Remember, Jesus told the Ephesian church that he hated the practices of the Nicolaitans, those who felt you could be just as immoral as you chose. You could do whatever you want to. It really didn't affect you spiritually because there was a big difference between what you did with physical things and spiritual things. You could do anything physical that you wanted to do. You could be as immoral as you wanted to be, and it wouldn't affect you. 
what was hated by Jesus and the Ephesian church was tolerated in Pergamum. The doctrine of Balaam refers to an incident in the Old Testament where Balaam constantly compromised God's will. You know the story about Balaam and the donkey and the, the King Balak wanted him to curse the people of God, curse the people of Israel. And Balaam said, well, God told me not to do this, but let me inquire of God again and see if God maybe changed his mind. And God wasn't real happy with that whole situation. You know what turned out that he ended up blessing the same people he was supposed to curse repeatedly. But there's part of the story that often gets unknown. And that would be that Balaam is going as far as he could to deliberately disobey God without actually cursing God's people, and God wouldn't permit it. Here's the aftermath. Turn with me to Numbers 25 for just a moment. I've left the rest of the story behind us. When we come to Numbers 25, we see something that happens a little bit later on. This is going to involve Moses and it's going to involve judgment and retribution. Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We see a little bit later on, judgment that occurred, and it was big-time judgment that was going on at this particular time. Let's turn ahead to Numbers 31.16. And in Numbers 31.16, here's what we read. In verse 16, Behold, these on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam was killed. So were a lot of other people. What was he doing? He decided that he wasn't able to curse the people of God, but he was able to destroy them by having them uh, have relations with the peoples of the enemy. And that was what God is coming down strong on with this judgment that is here before us. Balaam seduced God's people to unholy marriage alliances with the pagan world. There were those in Pergamum who were doing the same thing. They shouldn't be tolerated. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. In Smyrna, Satan tried to drive the church out of the world through persecution. But he couldn't do it. Now in Pergamum, He tried to drive the world into the church. He's Mr. Inside and Mr. Outside. Try to drive the church out of the world. That's not seeming to work so well. So let me try to drive the world into the church and let the world destroy the church because they'll cozy up together. Satan alternating his strategies, persisting relentlessly to try to destroy Jesus' church, introducing immorality and idolatry at the same time. There's an immediate alarm that should sound in our hearts at this point. How do the world and the church fall in love? How does that happen? Something's wrong when that happens. Here's why it's wrong. John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus saying, if the world hates you, 
Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Something wrong when the world loves us and when there's a marriage between the church and the world. Jesus said in John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. That's the way that it should be. There should not ever be this unholy alliance between the church and the world. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Do you know how we view that? Let's be surprised if the world hates us. Not if they don't hate us, but if they do hate us because we're playing it safe. We're allowing things to go on that shouldn't go on. It's absolutely certain the love affair and the marriage arrangement between the world and the church could never happen under normal circumstances. That is when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. The world could never bring itself to love the church until the church first became worldly. The church that is popular with the world today is not the spiritually strong, separated church. We've decided not to make any waves. We've decided not to rock any boats. We've decided at large to try to blend in so that nobody thinks less of us, and certainly there would be no no, um, antagonism toward us. The issue, again, continues to be compromising. It's a contest between the purity of the church and the tolerance of the church. There are some areas where compromise is simply not possible. The purity of the church is one of those areas. And Jesus is saying, I take it very seriously. If you are not guarding the purity of the church, if you're allowing this immorality into the church, then something has got to happen. And it's going to happen, and Jesus is going to do it. Here's the exhortation. A very simple word is commanded. It's the word repent. It means to have a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior or actions, a change in direction. If we're headed one way and it's the wrong way, we've got to go the other way. That word was addressed to the believers, to the faithful ones here. Repent of your compromise or else. Don't draw comfort in the change of the pronouns, incidentally, in verse 16, from you to them. Take a look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the word, excuse me, with the sword of my mouth. Someone has said that that you and them combination reflects an underlying Hebrew idiom commonly found in the Septuagint. Both pronouns refer to the whole church, those involved in the sin as well as those tolerating it. So don't think Jesus is saying, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to come and take, no, he's going to take care of all of us, the compromisers as well as those who are, who are doing the wrong behavior. Here's what one writer has said, and I believe this is so profound, but listen carefully to it because I think that you'll think it smacks well of truth. He says, sinning believers should be made to feel miserable in the fellowship and worship of the church by being confronted powerfully with the word of God. Neither is the goal of the church to provide an environment where unbelievers feel comfortable. It is to be a place where they can hear the truth and be convicted of their sins so as to be saved. For many people in today's church, the term worldliness 
has a quaint, old-fashioned ring to it. They associate it with prohibitions against certain things. Today's user-friendly, seeker-oriented, market-driven church doesn't preach much against worldliness. To do so might make unbelievers, not to mention many believers, uncomfortable and is therefore avoided as poor marketing strategy. That's why I've never been and never will be a proponent of having a seeker-driven church. That is, that we do everything that we can to make unchurched Harry feel as comfortable as possible, make him feel like he's in a movie theater, make, make him feel as if he's someplace that's very comfortable to him. I think it's important to be seeker-sensitive. That is, we're as friendly as we can. We explain as many things as we can. We try to lead people along. But we're not going to be a church that is calling people to come in because you'll feel right at home here in our church. They should not feel right at home in a church where truth is taught from God's word. The expense of uncompromising, tell it like it is, step on toes, truth of God's word, seeker sensitive, no, because we've got to be able to call it like it is. And so if you're involved right now in immorality, you're involved in idolatry, I have the responsibility to tell you that you need to repent of it. It is not something we're going to wink an eye at. It is something that is very, very serious. The last thing we see here is an expectation of promise in verse 17. Again, it's whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to the churches, it's to an individual as well. To the one, notice it says, who conquers or the one who overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, both the imperial temples at that time, the temples of the gods, even the health resorts prided themselves in having mysteries and secrets. You had to be among those who were in with what was going on. You had to, you had to know these secrets. Only the initiated knew what was going on. Now Jesus promises better secrets in the world. Hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. The hidden manna is pretty easy for us to deduce what that's talking about. That's the Lord Jesus himself, the bread of life. He's our nourishment in him. We have spiritual sustenance. The white stone... We know exactly the meaning there, but we don't know what the interpretation of the white stone is. We know what Jesus has it there for. Some law courts back at John's time gave a white stone to a defendant when he was acquitted or when he was declared not guilty. A black one was given when he was found guilty. That's possibly the picture that is here. Some of the interpreters say that it is. Some interpret the stone to be a diamond. It's a gift. It's a nice gift. It's a a gift that a lot of people... Like, it's a girl's best friend. Something that has something to do with the Urim and Thummim, the, the stones on the head, head plate of the high priest used to determine, excuse me, on the breastplate, used to determine God's will. Some feel it was a reward given to winners in some of the games at that particular time. In a lot of ways that it could have been used in, in that sense. That's the one that I favor, but I can't tell you which of these four it is. But the meaning behind this symbol is very clear. It indicates that the believer has been accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful assurance, especially because these people, some of them had been rejected by others, but they were going to be accepted 
by the Lord Jesus. The new name takes us to glory beyond this world to our assurance of eternal salvation. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. So the Lord Jesus, to those people in the church at Pergamum, he tells them, I'm very serious. He shows them because he identifies himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He says he's going to use it. He's going to war against them with the sword of his mouth. Even though there are some good things going on, they live in a very bad neighborhood. It's where Satan lives. It's where his throne is. It's where Antipas, his faithful witness, has been boiled in this brass cow. few things against you, though, and those things have to do with tolerating sin in our midst, compromising, permitting the world into the church. And Jesus said that will never, ever do. A strong stand needs to be taken. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to be a church that always takes a strong stand with his word. Heavenly Father, thank you that as we see the words that are written to these churches, that you take what we do as a church very seriously, that it's very important to you that we do things the right way. And I pray that you would help us Help us to never lose the importance of the purity of the church, the purity of your word, because that's what you've called us to. Help us never to cozy up to the world. Help us to never feel like they're going to think I'm intolerant if I take a stand on something, so I'd never want anybody to think I was that. Help us to realize there are far worse things than being intolerant, and one of them is to be tolerant of that which isn't true. We need your help because it appears congregation after congregation is falling by the wayside. It appears as if this world is becoming truly a place where Satan is wreaking havoc, and he is the prince of this world temporarily and the rest of his time is short and he knows it so help us to live for the lord jesus in his name amen